This EHIV Review Podcast is presented by DKB Med Radio. I consider PrEP to be a sexual health promotion package that can address both the HIV and STI epidemics, which are highly interrelated. PrEP is highly effective in preventing HIV, and we can and should, in tandem with PrEP, offer other interventions to prevent and treat STIs. MSM, PrEP, and STIs, a clinical perspective. Welcome to EHIV Review. Pre-exposure prophylaxis, PrEP, has been shown to reduce HIV transmission among men who have sex with men. But is PrEP effective in preventing sexually transmitted infections like gonorrhea, syphilis, and chlamydia? Is it possible that being on PrEP can increase the chances of an MSM acquiring an STI? What can clinicians do to better ensure the health, sexual and otherwise, of their patients? That's what we're here to talk about today with Dr. Matthew Spinelli, Assistant Professor in the Division of HIV, ID, and Global Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco, and San Francisco General Hospital. For Dr. Spinelli's disclosures and additional CME information, please go to our website, ehivreview.org, and click on the Volume 5, Issue 12 link. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of the HIV Review. Dr. Spinelli, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me to talk about this important topic. Our first learning objective, doctor, is to describe STI prevention strategies that should be offered to MSM, men who have sex with men, as part of routine sexual health care. So take us to the clinic, if you would please, Dr. Spinelli, and start us out with a patient scenario. A 35-year-old man presents for a routine yearly primary care visit. He has no complaints today, but asks if there are vaccines or cancer screening that he should consider. You review his lab results and the electronic medical record and note that he was treated in urgent care for a macular papular rash that was ultimately diagnosed as syphilis, and he was treated with intramuscular penicillin. He briefly mentions having heard about a medication called PrEP, but he's worried it could put him at risk for future sexually transmitted infections. So this patient, in a routine visit, lets you know he's interested in preventative health care. And that's great because, based at least in part on his prior syphilis diagnosis, he's likely to be at additional risk for STIs and or HIV. Now, this is an important conversation you want to have with him. How would you start it? For me, the sexual history is an important pathway towards discussion of both HIV and sexually transmitted infection prevention. But some patients may fear answering these questions openly due to stigma. In this case, a prior syphilis diagnosis, a prior sexually transmitted infection, should lead the provider to prioritize a discussion of the sexual history. It's important to note that the syphilis and HIV epidemics are both highly concentrated among men who have sex with men. Unfortunately, many primary care providers feel rushed by very short visits or simply uncomfortable performing a sexual history among all of their patients. And that's something we've heard before. Many providers, and we've heard this from both primary care as well as specialty clinicians, feel uncomfortable taking a sexual history. What advice can you give them? So I find that it can be helpful to provide an introduction where you normalize the discussion about sexual health that's about to follow. I usually would say something like, I would like to talk to you about some approaches that my patients have used to support their sexual health, such as sexually transmitted infection testing and also PrEP. After I give that warning shot, I usually discuss STI testing and PrEP up front because this is such an important component of preventative health care. It could also signal to the patient that you are a PrEP literate or sexual health literate provider. A sexual health literate provider, that's an interesting phrase. What does it mean? Some of our patients have told me that they've received judgmental responses in the past when talking about sexual health topics, in particular PrEP. 
So your knowledge of PrEP and of other key sexual health interventions can help telegraph to patients that you're open to the discussion. Some approaches that I use, I avoid questions such as, do you have sex with men, women, or both, as many of us were taught in medical school, because this can lead to uncomfortable responses by our patients and also is too restrictive in in some ways. So I prefer open-ended questions, such as, tell me about how you have sex and who you have sex with. I find that this allows patients to feel open giving a response that feels right to them. We've heard from other clinicians that to achieve the most benefit, the sexual history you obtain needs to be pretty complete. Would you agree with that? Yes, in some ways it's important to have a complete sexual history, although it's important to recognize that there are many competing priorities, particularly during a standard primary care visit. So given those time pressures, in primary care and otherwise, how can clinicians get enough of a sexual history to guide treatment decisions? How do you do it, Dr. Spinelli? I generally start with an open-ended question for the reasons that we previously discussed, but I then find it helpful to move to more direct, specific questions. I do start by asking these questions by using medical terminology to avoid making assumptions about the community that my patient belongs to. For instance, I will say, insertive or receptive anal sex. I avoid asking questions that do not impact my management in any way, particularly because of time pressures and also because it can make patients feel uncomfortable. So I wouldn't ask a question like, how many lifetime partners have you had? However, if I sense that the patient does not understand the medical terminology, I then move some terminology that that my patients are more comfortable with. So terminology like topping to indicate insertive anal sex or bottoming and first or versatile. These are commonly used terms among men of sex with men. It's important to note though that these are not universal terms. It can be helpful to be very specific. I find this is particularly important with youth. So for instance, a question that I would ask to a younger patient would be, Do you have sex by putting your penis in your partner's mouth, anus, vagina, et cetera? So it's very important not to say unprotected sex or unsafe sex or risky sexual behavior as a synonym for lack of condom use. This implies a value judgment, and it's actually not factually correct. PrEP is more effective than condoms, for instance, for HIV prevention. Patients have told me this kind of language has dissuaded them from being honest with their provider because they feel like they would be judged if they discussed their sexual behavior. So what do you say instead? I would say condomless, anal, insertive, or receptive sex with or without PrEP. Some people refer this to as barebacking, but I wouldn't use that term unless the patient used it first. If my time is limited, I prioritize the PrEP, HIV, or STI screening discussion, and I save in-depth sexual history for a future visit. Let's go back to the patient you presented. Yes, he had a prior syphilis infection, but it sounds like your talk with him is mostly focused on PrEP. How does your discussion of HIV prevention relate to STI prevention in this situation? So I would discuss all of these topics together, PrEP, STI screening and treatment, and also condoms in this man with a prior syphilis infection. I consider PrEP to be a sexual health promotion package that can address both the HIV and STI epidemics, which are highly interrelated. PrEP is highly effective in preventing HIV, and we can and should, in tandem with PrEP, offer other interventions to prevent and treat STIs. For instance, STI screening is part of a comprehensive sexual health care and PrEP package. We refer to this as PrEP as a prevention package. In men of sex with men on PrEP, quarterly STI screening is recommended, although there is some allowance for semi-annual screening if you're at lower risk. Most experts would recommend quarterly. The CDC defines at-risk of STIs as sexually active adults and adolescents with signs or symptoms of an STD and men with sex with men at high risk, defined as those with a recent bacterial STD or those with multiple sexual partners. However, my view is that if they're on PrEP, there's also a good chance they're at risk of STIs. 
So I typically, to be simple, recommend three months screening for everyone. You should also offer vaccines for other potential STIs, such as hepatitis A, hepatitis B, HPV. And then finally, I'd also recommend screening for sexually transmitted hepatitis C virus infection at least yearly. Most sexually transmitted infections are without symptoms. So that's why it's so important to perform screening in those who are at risk. Your patient expressed concern that PrEP might put him at risk for future STIs. We know that's not true. PrEP does not cause people to get sexually transmitted infections, but it's important to, as we say, meet people where they are at, discuss the benefits of sexual health prevention, and normalize past behavior. I try to frame the benefits of PrEP and other sexual health promotion strategies rather than focusing on just reducing risks. That's because I find it can be more effective to convincing patients that PrEP is a good option for them. Some other benefits of PrEP, in addition to reducing your risk of HIV, include reducing anxiety, increasing sexual satisfaction, et cetera. In general, sex-positive or sex-affirming messages can combat stigma and make patients feel more comfortable with you as a provider and potentially set them more at ease when discussing their sexual behavior in PrEP. Increasing STI screening, it's an obvious first step to reducing STI transmission. Uh, Talk to us about some of the strategies you use in your practice. I try to normalize STI screening at all anatomic sites, including the rectum and the throat, in addition to urinary screening, because that's, that's particularly important because we'll detect many more STIs through this approach. One other tactic I use is I make it an opt-out rather than opt-in approach. So I would say something like, I typically offer STI screening to my patients in their throat and their rectum and also by checking their urine. Are you comfortable with that? The other important point is that extra genital screening is underutilized. So I I routinely offer pharyngeal and rectal swabs, and I don't base this on the sexual history. I ask patients if they would like to do them, and if they refuse, that's okay. I've diagnosed many rectal STIs in people who deny having receptive anal sex. Let's talk about self-collection or STI self-testing. In your newsletter issue, you analyze the evidence for self-testing. How does that apply in practice? Well, I think self-collection of STI testing is actually a game changer for patients in clinics. It's been shown in several studies to have equivalent diagnostic efficacy as uh, the standard screening, and it, it tends to make patients feel more comfortable while also increasing the efficiency of sort of throughput in the clinic. We've done things like providing posters in our bathroom about how to do it, as well as training our staff. And uh, in particular, a resource that I'd recommend is the San Francisco City Clinic website, which has great one-pagers and YouTube instructional videos. Once I explain it once to my patients, it becomes routine, and that's understood as the way we do things. So now it's exceedingly rare that I collect an SDI swab in my clinic. Some other innovative solutions are patients can actually self-collect at home and drop off at many lab testing companies. And as I mentioned, providers feel this to be a lot more convenient because it takes away one more thing that you have to do in the clinic. Thank you for bringing us this patient and explanation, Dr. Spinelli. Let's wrap up this first case by reviewing how our learning objective has been addressed. So, STI prevention strategies that should be offered to MSM as part of routine sexual health care. What are the key things our listeners need to know? Well, I think the first point is that the STI epidemic is unfortunately worsening among men of sex with men. And that worsening was occurring even prior to PrEP's availability. So this is a problem before PrEP as well as after PrEP, and we need to focus on it. The second point is that a sexual history, particularly a focused sexual history, should start with open-ended questions and avoid value judgments. If you're short on time, I would make sure you prioritize talking about PrEP, STI, and HIV testing. STI screening is both a part of the PrEP prevention package 
and is also a part of routine health care for men who have sex with men or really any sexually active person with, with behaviors that put them at increased risk of having an STI. And the fourth point is that self-collection is an important tool to increase both the feasibility and acceptability of extragenital screening. Patients find it highly acceptable and it also decreases the burden on the provider. Thank you, doctor. And we'll return with Dr. Matthew Spinelli from UC San Francisco in just a moment. COVID-19. Some people have said it's changed everything. But one thing that hasn't changed is our need to get timely and, most importantly, accurate information. That's why we created our COVID-19 Keeping Up With a Moving Target programs. It's a weekly webinar and podcast series hosted by Dr. Paul Alwater, Clinical Director of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. It's updated information from the front lines of COVID-19 research and practice, and it's answers from the experts to your most important questions. COVID-19, Keeping Up With a Moving Target, is CME and CE accredited and provided free of charge. For more information, go to covid19.dkbmed.com. Thank you, and please stay safe. Welcome back to this EHIV Review Podcast. We've been speaking with Dr. Matthew Spinelli from the Division of HIV, ID, and Global Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco, about STI prevention strategies that should be made a part of routine sexual health care. Let's focus now on our next learning objective, which is to discuss some of the novel STI prevention strategies on the horizon. So once again, if you would please, Dr. Spinelli, take us to the clinic. A 25-year-old man on PrEP returns for a scheduled follow-up visit with you, and he asks about a medication his friend is taking called doxycycline, which he heard can prevent sexually transmitted infections after having sex. He's had a prior chlamydia infection about two years ago, but has had negative quarterly screening tests since then. He reports mainly insertive anal sex, sometimes without condoms, and only with cisgender men. You analyzed one of the doxycycline trials in your newsletter issue. As of right now, doxycycline has not been specifically approved for either pre- or post-exposure prophylaxis. Have you had many other patients ask you about it? Yes, I have commonly had patients ask me about it. It's important to note that doxycycline has been approved for several other indications, including sexually transmitted infection treatment for decades, specifically chlamydia treatment. It has well-understood safety and efficacy. It, like most and many antibiotics, is often used in an off-label manner uh, by patients and doctors. And I've had patients frequently ask about it for STI prevention. Some have bought it over the internet from other countries or have asked their doctors to prescribe it. And I think this will become increasingly common, particularly because many of my patients are highly informed about new HIV and STI prevention developments. This is particularly via social networks, such as a particular Facebook group called PrepFacts, which is really excellent, or via social networking or apps such as Grindr. The use of doxycycline for STI pre-exposure or post-exposure, what does the evidence say? Doxycycline is a tetracycline antibiotic most commonly used for inflammatory acne, treatment of Staphylococcus aureus infections, Lyme disease, community-acquired pneumonia, as well as some rarer infections. There are two studies which have studied doxycycline as a biomedical STI prevention strategy. The largest study, which included 232 patients, used a post-exposure prophylaxis approach. To make this more confusing, it was a sub-study of, of a PrEP trial among MSM and transgender women, but the antibiotic for STI prevention was taken after sex. And this is the trial that I analyzed in my, my newsletter. Participants were instructed to take two 100 milligram doxycycline tablets within 24 hours, but up to 72 hours after sex. 
This strategy was effective in reducing chlamydia and syphilis infections, at least preliminarily, but it did not reduce gonorrhea infections. This is likely due to pre-existing gonorrhea resistance. Another smaller study recruited people living with HIV who had two or more prior syphilis infections and used a daily pre-exposure prophylaxis strategy. This involved taking one 100-milligram doxycycline tablet every day, regardless of the timing of sex. They similarly found a reduction in any sexually transmitted infection, although they were not powered to examine individual STI rate changes. So doxycycline has shown evidence of efficacy against some STI pathogens, but what are the possible cons? Doxycycline can cause a few issues, including pill esophagitis, which is a direct irritation of the antibiotic on the esophagus. It can also cause some massive reflux, as well as photosensitivity, which can lead to severe blistering sunburns, regardless of the skin type. These harms can never be minimized through taking doxycycline with plenty of water, never immediately before going to bed, and also through sun avoidance and sunscreen. It's important to note that doxycycline is unlikely to prevent gonorrhea in many jurisdictions, given pre-existing antimicrobial resistance. So this is an important limitation. Let's stay on doxycycline resistance for a moment. What does the evidence say about it? We currently have, unfortunately, very little information on the impact of doxycycline on antimicrobial resistance, which is a global issue of growing concern. Staph aureus, a common and virulent pathogen, currently maintains very high susceptibility to doxycycline. So it's important that we study the impact of this strategy on antimicrobial resistance for staph and other pathogens of concern before using this strategy more widely. It's not currently FDA approved for this indication because the evidence so far is not strong enough to support its approval. Based on the information we currently have available, I am not routinely prescribing doxycycline. When patients ask about STI prevention or, or doxycycline, I use this as an opportunity to discuss sexual health promotion in general, as well as STI screening, prep, and condoms, et cetera. Back to the patient you presented. He's 25 years old. He's on PrEP. He doesn't use condoms. How would you counsel him about preventing STI infections? My recommendation to this patient would be to continue STI screening as part of his sexual health and PrEP care and ensure he has appropriate vaccines to prevent other STIs, such as HPV, hepatitis A, hepatitis B vaccines. I'd also make sure he doesn't feel judged or reprimanded when we discuss this issue and others such as condoms, because this can damage report. I'd acknowledge that the field is moving quite rapidly, and there are large trials in France and Seattle studying this question, although they may be somewhat delayed by the COVID-19 epidemic. There is an active trial in San Francisco, so I've typically been referring my patients to it if interested. Many of my colleagues have been using it on a case-by-case basis outside of a trial. I think I would prioritize it for people who've had prior syphilis or certainly multiple syphilis infections because I worry most about these patients, but I would not recommend it for routine use among all PrEP users. The interest is very high in doxycycline for STI prevention, and it's routinely discussed by my patients online, on dating apps, and on Facebook. So I'd recommend that providers be prepared to answer questions about this strategy. Thank you for sharing your insight and expertise, Dr. Spinelli. What I'd like to do now is wrap up our discussion by revisiting our second learning objective, which is discuss novel STI prevention strategies on the horizon for men who have sex with men. What are the key things our listeners should take away from our talk? Outside of effective STI screening and condoms, as well as PrEP for HIV, there are new biomedical STI prevention strategies on the horizon. Doxycycline PEP, as we discussed, has two large trials currently ongoing. So I would recommend staying tuned for more information about this exciting topic. The important things to know are that in these two prior trials of doxycycline, it significantly reduced the sexually transmitted infection incidence, specifically in syphilis and chlamydia, although not in gonorrhea. 
gonorrhea is unlikely to be impacted by this strategy because of pre-existing doxycycline resistance in many settings. There are some potential harms of this exciting strategy that include its impact on antimicrobial resistance, which could potentially be problematic both to the treated individual and also to the larger society that's dealing with this important problem. I think this requires additional study. Possible side effects include a few that are generally mild, esophagitis and photosensitivity. Doxycycline post-exposure prophylaxis is not FDA-approved, and most experts would only consider using it on a case-by-case basis. However, there is high interest among patients about using it, so I would be ready to answer questions. From the Division of HIV, ID, and Global Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco, Dr. Matthew Spinelli, thank you for joining us for this EHIV Review Podcast. It was a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. For EHIV Review, I'm Bob Busker. To receive CME credit for this activity, please take the post-test at ehiv.dkbmed.com. EHIV Review is supported by educational grants from Gilead Sciences Incorporated and Vive Healthcare. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. EHIV Review is copyright with all rights reserved by DKP Med, LLC. Thank you for listening.